The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Sometimes it's the normal, sometimes it's the abnormal, and sometimes it's the paranormal. Tonight, it's the controversial. Welcome to the program. It's always Beyond Reality here on Beyond Reality Radio. I'm your host, J.V. Johnson. We've got something that we're going to uh, take a, a very uh, deep look into tonight. Um, JFK assassination has been uh, a topic of debate and discussion for the 56 years that we have uh, since the the actual assassination itself. And most of the time, the conversations center around different theories that, that uh, basically contradict the official the official version of events, which was that a single gunman, Lee Harvey Oswald, with a single rifle from the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository, fired a fatal shot and assassinated the president of the United States, John F. Kennedy. That's what the Warren Commission said. Lee Harvey Oswald was arrested eventually. And while he was in police custody, he was assassinated himself by Jack Ruby. It's the stuff. I mean, this this is a perfect example of the truth being stranger than fiction. I mean, these series of events, you could not have written a story that would have had more a controversy and b intrigue than what actually happened. And because it's so convoluted, many have uh, believed for a very long time with very good reason that the Warren Commission version of events, that it was just Lee Harvey Oswald acting alone, was fictitious. And there are a lot of good theories. There are a lot of people who have done a lot of terrific research, not uh, least of which is Jim Garrison, the New Orleans district attorney at the time, who uh, actually prosecuted and went to court over this particular, um, over his his investigation. Um but these theories have all shown very impressive evidence at times, very impressive ideas at times, and have circulated for the 56 years that we've been talking about this. In fact, now that we're uh, past midnight here on the East Coast, we are exactly 56 years to the day from um, the actual date of the assassination. But our guest tonight started out believing that there was a conspiracy and has since changed his mind. He's written a book called I Was a Teenage JFK Conspiracy Freak. His name is Fred Litwin. But he now believes that, in fact, Lee Harvey Oswald was the lone assassin. That's going to be our conversation tonight. If you disagree, we hope you will call in and ask thoughtful, intelligent questions of our guest. We'll take calls in the second hour of the program at 844-687-7669. This will in no doubt be controversial, but it will certainly be interesting as well. Again, the phone number for the second hour of the program, 844-687-7669. Tonight's conversation is going to be very, very interesting. Just looking ahead so you know what we've got coming up on the program. Tomorrow night, of course, a best of. Monday night, we've got a couple of different guests for you. We're going to continue the discussion about the JFK assassination in the first hour of Monday night's program. James Douglas will be with us. He's an author and a theologian. He, he says that JFK was actually killed for trying to make peace during the Cold War. That's one of the popular theories. We'll see what uh, what he has that supports that particular theory. In the second hour of the program, Brian Keating will be here. He's an astrophysicist and an author. His book is called Losing the Nobel Prize. He'll discuss this year's winners and the most recent results in cosmology and the search for E.T. All good stuff. That's the second hour of Monday night's program. Tuesday night next week, Rob Shelsky, paranormal expert, will return to the program to present cases in time of time travel intrusion. So a lot of great shows coming up here on Beyond Reality Radio. Uh, Before we bring our guest in, I want to remind you to go to the YouTube channel. We would like you to subscribe and support us there. There's no fee. It's free. Just go to YouTube and search for J.V. Johnson. Click the subscribe button. The show streams live there if you don't have a radio station in your market carrying the program. But it also has an archive of about 400 back episodes of the show, all available for free. You can check them out there, plus some bonus content. Again, go to YouTube, search for J.V. Johnson, and subscribe. We're going to go to break because we have a lot to talk about. We're going to get calls uh, with questions. This is going to be a great night with our guest, Fred Litwin. It's Beyond Reality Radio. 
Did you know that online retailers like Amazon have constant deals that can save you money on the things you buy every day? It's no joke. Save 40%, 50%, even 80% on great products. And all you have to do is know about them. Noodle Shark is the way to be alerted when something good is coming your way. Noodle Shark is the social media page that lists great deals that not only save you money, but give you the deals before anyone else has them. All you have to do is find Noodle Shark on Facebook. Search it as The Noodle Shark. That's The Noodle Shark. Because you deserve to save too. Become a shark and save. 56 years ago today, JFK was assassinated in Dallas. Most of the people that we've had on the program talk about uh, conspiracy theories. They talk about an alternative version of events that differs from what the official Warren Commission determined, which was that there was a single gunman. His name was Lee Harvey Oswald, and he did this on his own, without help. He was a communist sympathizer, and he's responsible for the murder of JFK. Since that very day, many people have brought forth other versions and other ideas, and it particularly took off when the Zapruder film was finally released to the public. It hadn't been seen in over, I think, a dozen years since uh, it actually captured the assassination of the president. And it was a real bombshell when it was finally shown to the public. And people like Jim Garrison, the district attorney of New Orleans, very quickly started to look into this event as being something that was far more sinister and far more complex than what the official version was. And as you know, if you've seen the movie JFK, Jim Garrison actually brought charges against an individual by the name of Clay Shaw. Clay was acquitted in that trial, and then he was tried again for perjury and Jim Garrison was sure that he was onto something. Jim Garrison's book is called On the Trail of the Assassins, and that book was the uh, basically the source material for Oliver Stone's movie JFK. And that film really brought this particular discussion back into the public limelight. I think it was, what, 92, 93, 94? I'm not, uh, I'm not exactly sure what year that film was released. It's a really good film. However, some people will say it's it's a fictional account of what happened, and... Our guest, as when we get him on the line here, is one of those people. Fred Litwin is the author of a book called I Was a Teenage JFK Conspiracy Freak. But over time, he's come to believe that the official version of events, not that the Warren Commission is perfect, the report is not perfect, but the premise was correct, that Lee Harvey Oswald was, in fact, the lone assassin. His website is conspiracyfreak.com. He's got a couple of books to his name, the one I've just mentioned, also, conservative, conservative confidential inside the fabulous blue tent. So we're going to be talking about this. And I know that this is a, one of those topics. You know, there are certain topics that elicit a lot of emotion from people. And this is one of those topics. So when we get to the point where we will take your phone calls, we encourage very respectful questions. Um, we're not going to have arguments, though. And I know that when emotions run high... Arguments can sometimes um, be hard to avoid. However, we are going to make this as civil and as um, respectful as we possibly can. So uh, we will bring him on in just a moment. We're taking a quick look ahead at what we've got coming up on the program as well. Tomorrow night will be a best of. Uh, By the way, just so you know, the phone number for calls in the second hour of the program is 844-687-7669. I will, of course read it or mention it a couple of times but we won't start taking calls until the second hour of the show um again looking ahead tomorrow night is a best of program every friday night is on beyond reality radio but monday we've got two guests for you in the first hour of the program james douglas will be with us james is an author and a theologian he's going to be talking also about the jfk assassination he's got a different take on it and then in the second hour of the show brian keating will be here he's an astrophysicist and an author His new book is called Losing the Nobel Prize. He'll talk about this year's winners, what they mean, what their work means, and the most recent results in cosmology and the search for extraterrestrial life. A lot of great stuff coming up here on Beyond Reality Radio. But tonight's discussion is about an event that occurred 56 years ago today. Of course, that's if you're on the East Coast, where we've crossed... Uh, the Midnight Barrier, and we are now on uh, in uh, November 22nd. So 56 years ago, John F. Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas, Texas. And our guest tonight has written a book called I Was a Teenage JFA, JFK Conspiracy Freak. His name is Fred Litwin. Hey, Fred, welcome to the program. Great to have you here. 
Uh, great to be here. Thank you very much. I, uh, if I can speak correctly, I've got a lot of questions for you about this because, man, we have this is one of those topics that uh, just elicits a lot of emotion from people. Regardless of which side of the fence you're on, people get upset, sometimes angry, but certainly um, have, have when they have an opinion, they, they they're very forceful and have and, and want to speak it loudly. Uh, I'm sure you've found that over the course of writing this book and and looking into this over the course of the years. Oh, well, look, uh, when I was 19, I was first accused of being a CIA agent back when I was a student in Montreal, Canada. Um, I never got the checks, but I was accused back then. <laughs> look, I've had people uh, say use all sorts of insults about me on the Internet. It's amazing what people say and write about me. All because you disagreed with the idea there's a conspiracy involved here. That's right. I mean, it's just amazing that, you know, I, I've had some major conspiracy theories go around... Uh, uh, saying that I'm funded by the Koch brothers. It's just amazing what people will, will say about me rather than just talk about the ideas. Let's, um, let's start at the beginning here. Um, if, I, if I know your biography well enough, I know that you were alive when JFK was assassinated. Do you remember the day? Um, I do remember the day. I, mean, I don't remember that much. I remember one home. I think you were in school, even in Montreal, Canada, and it was a Friday, and I remember feeling sad. But that's about all I can remember. I can't remember anything else from that weekend. Do you remember the attitude? I mean, being in Canada, I, I imagine it may have been a little bit different than maybe what it was here in the States. But do you remember the attitude of the of the adults around you, what the feeling was when the news was announced? I, I really can't remember any about, anything about that at all. It's, uh, I just, I wasn't... Uh, no, I can't remember, but you know, JFK was widely admired in Canada. And uh, so it, it, you know, that sort of thing really hit everybody. Clearly, you were too young to form an opinion at that point. So somewhere along the way, yep. this the notion that um, there's there were multiple theories about how this had happened. One was an official account by a government body, uh, the Warren Commission, and then there were all the others. At what point did this become important to you? Well, I was watching the Geraldo Rivera show and watching the Zapruder film for the first time on national TV. Um, I saw that and um, realized I really had to know more. What what really happened? The, the film was intriguing. It seemed to imply uh, more than one gunman. Uh, but I, it set me on a chase, and I wanted to answer the question. The question I had was, given that evidence, why did the Warren Commission still say there was only a shooter from behind? That was the question I had to answer. There was something missing from that show, and it set me on a, a very, very long uh, goose chase. For those who are not familiar with the Zapruder film, and I'm sure there's very few that aren't at this point, uh, tell us what the Zapruder film was and who Abraham Zapruder himself was. Well, Abraham Zapruder was a dress manufacturer who uh, worked uh, just uh, in Daly Plaza and decided that... Um, Actually, he didn't even bring his camera to work. His secretary told him to go back go back and get his video camera. He went to get it, and he ended up um, filming a 26-second film of the assassination, with, which is the clearest film we have of the assassination. And he was right across, uh, like around 20 feet away from when Kennedy uh, got hit in the head. It's a very graphic film. Now, here is a, is a, a citizen who... Um thought, hey, uh, this is a pretty cool thing. The president of the United States is going to be driving through town here. Let me grab my movie camera, because there was no videotape at the time. This was actually a film camera. And let me just film it. And he happened to catch, uh, you know, very surprisingly to himself and the world, I suppose, uh, one of the most notorious events in all of history, just by chance. And, of course, what the Zapruder film showed was that at the time of the fatal headshot, Kennedy's head moved back and to the left, which seemed to indicate a shot being fired from the front, from the grassy knoll, which again is, is counter to what the Warren Commission concluded. Now, when the Zapruder film was taken, and you know, immediately after the assassination itself and the follow-up investigation, that film was confiscated and it wasn't shown to the public for how long? Well, it was, it, was, it was not shown publicly on TV until 75, but the film, you could see the film on the National Archives. 
So Life Magazine had a, gave a copy to the Warren Commission, and it was deposited in the National Archives. So anybody could see it if they wanted to. They just had to go to Washington. And, of course, the individual frames were printed in the Warren Commission volumes. Right. But right. it wasn't shown on TV until 1975. And would you say that was a bit of a game changer when that was actually shown publicly for the first time on television where most people would actually have access to it? Was that a game changer in this whole discussion? Oh, absolutely. You could see in the files, you could see all the letters that were written from the public to senators and House of Representatives members who were saying, what's going on here? We need a new investigation. How do you explain this? Um, And that put a lot of pressure on Congress to reopen the investigation, which, of course, they did in 1976. Fred, you were talking about having seen the Zapruder film the first time on Geraldo Rivera's program, I think yep. you said it was. That's right. Uh, did, did Geraldo or any of the guests at the time, I'm not sure how it was presented, did they offer opinion as to what was being shown? In other words, when they were talking about the head being jolted back into the left, did they speculate that it could not have been a shot fired from behind as Oswald would have been? Yeah, it was clear. They, they said this was definitely a shot from the front, from the grassy knoll. It could not have been shot from behind. And, of course, it seemed, uh, you know, very, very convincing. Um, you know, <laughs> again, it immediately sent me to my university library the next day to uh, check out JFK books. So as you did that, what sources did you use and what, what, how did you start to form an opinion about it? Well, the first book that I took out—I mean, our, uh, my universe—the only the, the, one of the, I took out Mark Lane's *Rest to Judgment*. Right. And so I, I devoured that book. And w- one of the things that w- was in that book was he said that the autopsy, X-rays, and photographs had been confiscated by federal police agents. Now that book was written in '66, and I, this was now 1975. So I had nine years to sort of like fill in the gap. And so I went to the periodical indexes, and I looked up the JFK assassination. I started reading old Time and Newsweek magazines to sort of catch up to 75. And I found out that actually the autopsy x-rays and photos had been found. They were in the possession of the Kennedy family. And that two doctors, John Latimer and Cyril Wecht, had examined them in 1972. So I went uh, and found their addresses, and I wrote them each a letter, and around three weeks later, I got a big package of articles from both doctors. When you set out to do this, obviously you're, you're a young man. Um, yep. You know, not everybody dives in headfirst like this, which you clearly took an interest beyond what, um, you know, what an average uh, observer would. Uh, yep. Was there something personal about this to you? Or did you just, did it just grab you in a way that you just had to get to the truth? It grabbed me in a way, how do you explain this? I mean, I know what I'm seeing. I'm seeing what looks like a shot from the front. Um, so what's going on here? I, it's, I had to explain this, like what, how, or not explain it, but I had to understand what is going on here because this seems really major. And uh, so it, it led to, uh, you know, an obsession that's lasted many, many years. So you received information from the doctors that viewed the autopsy reports and photos, and what was their conclusion? Well, and the, both doctors, uh, Cyril Weck was a forensic pathologist, John Latimer was a, uh, a urologist, um, and they both agreed that the shots could only have been fired from behind, um, and uh, that perhaps um, it was a neuromuscular spasm that caused Kennedy's head to go back. So they agreed and, with, with the official version of events? They did, except Cyril Weck took issue with the single bullet theory, the theory that one bullet Another bullet hit uh, Kennedy and then went through Connolly, uh, causing seven wounds. That was the thing that he could not buy. And so I, that was the thing that I thought was puzzling, too. It doesn't make sense at all that one bullet could cause seven wounds and come out relatively unscathed. So I was convinced the headshot came from behind, but the single bullet theory seemed preposterous to me. With these doctors analyzing the data from the autopsies and presenting basically what would uh, contradict the belief that a shot came from the front, did that put the matter to bed for anybody? I think, well, for, it certainly put, put it to bed for me. I never doubted that the shots came from behind after, uh, after their, their articles. They were just so convincing, and the medical evidence was just so clear. Um, uh, for other people, um, they believed otherwise. But for me, it was, it was uh, never an issue for me about the headshot. 
Let's talk about the Warren Commission. The Warren Commission was um, convened fairly shortly after the assassination. What was their mission, and what was their conclusion? Well, the Warren Commission mission was to find out the, the truth of what happened. Um, there was one very, very big problem with the Warren Commission. They, they, they were really, they started their work, uh, they were formed in December 1963, but they really didn't get going until January 1964. But they had to finish their work by September 1964 because it was an election year. Right. Lyndon Johnson told them you had to finish your work early. And uh, that was a huge mistake, because when the Warren Commission finished and delivered their report to Johnson, there were still leads that needed to be run down. And so, uh, but they were disbanding. They concluded, of course, that there was no conspiracy, and that Lee Harvey Oswald fired three shots, two of which um, hit Kennedy. So... One of the things that people will point to when they talk about conspiracy is that the Warren Commission did not interview some key witnesses. Are you saying now that um, that was because they just didn't have enough time to get everyone? I well, I think I think they you know I don't know who they didn't who they missed out. I think they they interviewed most they interviewed a lot of people in ten months. They went through you know over five hundred and fifty witnesses. Um, I think they interviewed just about all the major witnesses. They did make a couple of very big mistakes. And I think the biggest mistake the Warren Commission made was not hiring a team of forensic pathologists to go and examine the autopsy x-rays and photos and issue a top-notch scientific report. They did not examine the, uh, the autopsy material at all, which was, uh, I think, a very, very big error. Was there ever any explanation as to why they didn't look at the autopsy information? Earl Warren wouldn't have it. Earl Warren, they, the, the staff wanted to. Earl Warren said no. I think he was worried that somehow the uh, the autopsy pictures would come out to the public, and so he forbid it. And I think he um, he made a very big mistake. Did he did he do that because he felt like they were gruesome and they sh- and it was maybe disrespectful to the dead president? Yeah, I think it was, they were gruesome. I think he 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 worried that somehow they would leak. Of course, you know, look, they could've, it could have been controlled. Again, he could have given it to a, a team of professional uh, forensic pathologists. All of that could have been controlled uh, and done properly, and he, was just, he just didn't, wouldn't let it happen, and I, I think it was a big mistake. So along the way, Oliver Stone makes yep. and releases a movie called JFK, yep. which probably put more eyes on this particular topic than any single piece of media. But before we talk about the movie specifically, we need to talk about the work that inspired the film, which would be Jim Garrison's work. Who was Jim Garrison, and and what was he after? By the way, my next book is going to be on Jim Garrison. Um, Jim Garrison was the the district attorney of New Orleans. Um, And in in 1967... um, uh, the end of 1966, he decided that he would reinvestigate some parts of the Warren of uh, some parts of the JFK assassination because Lee Harvey Oswald lived in New Orleans for five months um, prior to the assassination, and so he had some leads that he wanted to relook in New Orleans, and perhaps this would um, tell us more information about how the conspiracy might have might have started. And I think that was. Probably with, with good intentions, he started uh, his investigation. That ultimately led him to charge a New Orleans businessman, Clay Shaw, with conspiracy to kill Kennedy um, in March 1967. Um, it took two years to go to trial. It was a 40-day trial. Clay Shaw was acquitted. And then Garrison, unfortunately, charged him with perjury. And it took two years for that to get thrown out. And then shortly afterwards, Clay Shaw died of cancer. Was there anything personal between Garrison and Clay Shaw? In other words, did he have some type of vendetta against that man? Um, maybe had encountered him previously in New Orleans. Well, there were rumors. There was a story that 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 at a restaurant, Garrison had a uh, had a fight with his wife, and he had he had thrown a he had he had uh, tossed a glass of wine at his wife, and Clay Shaw intervened to stop the fight. Um, that's a story that goes around New Orleans. I, I'm not sure how true it is. Um, and there were other rumors about um, uh, perhaps, uh, well, uh, you know, perhaps uh, uh, both Garrison and Clay Shaw going after the same guy in uh, in university. Mm. Um, if you 
watch the film uh, JFK, you are introduced to a lot of very um, strange characters, I'll say. Uh, if you read the book on the trail of the assassins, which I had, you know, you get more information about those same those very characters. And there is a lot of uh, things that will raise eyebrows and and make you scratch your head about some of these guys, like David Ferry and in the ex- actions of uh, Guy Bannister. Let's talk a little bit about who those people are and sure. how sure. they, uh, according to Garrison, fit into this whole thing. Well, you know, David Ferry was one of the was a suspect right at the beginning of the case. Uh, David Ferry um, was uh, was working as an investigator for the lawyer who was working for Carlos Marcello, who was the mob boss of uh, of New Orleans. And the day of the assassination, Ferry uh, he had just won a court case, um, and he decided um, to with two of his friends to drive that night to Houston and Galveston to go ice skating. And they spent the weekend uh, uh, ice skating and uh, uh, doing some other business, and ultimately um, uh, they ended up going back to New Orleans. But before they got back, um, a, a enemy of Ferry's had called the Secret Service. He called the FBI and a bunch of other people, saying that Ferry should be a suspect because he was involved in the Civil Air Patrol when Lee Harvey Oswald was a student in the Civil Air Patrol in the 1950s, and that they might have known each other, and uh, perhaps Ferry had taught Oswald how to use a gun, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so Ferry was picked up by Garrison's men um, in 1963 and questioned right after the assassination. In the film and in the book, we see Lee Harvey Oswald associating with all of these people. Was that yep. speculation, or is there evidence that he actually did? It's not speculation. He never. He he did not have any uh, association with any of those people. He didn't. Um, well, it's true. It's certainly true that Lee Harvey Oswald, for a very you know one or two sessions, was in the Civil Air Patrol when Ferry was in the Civil Air Patrol. But there's absolutely no evidence that they uh, uh, knew each other uh, in 1963, which would have been you know eight years later. Um, there's just no evidence of that at all. We're talking with Fred Litwin. He's the author of a book called I Was a Teenage JFK Conspiracy Freak. I'm not sure why I keep messing that up. Um, did you really consider yourself a conspiracy freak at that point? I mean, were you really that invested in it? Well, you have to understand, I mean, the, the, word, the use of the word freak, I don't use it in a nasty way. Right, of course. Um, you know, you remember Zonker Harris and the Doonesbury character was a, a freak about the way he tended plants and stuff. He was a freak, but a freak in a good way. Yeah. So I was sort of a freak in the sense that, look, none of my friends were interested in the JFK assassination. And there I was, reading every book I could find, going to use bookstores to find old books, um, going to every library I could find to see what book I hadn't been able to find. Um, I was a bit of a freak. Passionate is probably a way to put it, too. Yeah, passionate for sure. We only have a couple minutes in this segment, Fred, and I want to just kind of wrap up this discussion about uh, the film JFK. Do you think that the introduction of that film and that story uh, was uh, good for this discussion because it brought more attention to it, or do you think it was bad because it propagated what you would consider a baseless theory? Well, it was mixed. It propagated a horribly baseless theory because it made Jim Garrison a hero and it made Clay Shaw a uh, a villain when it was just the reverse. So I think that was an unfortunate uh, use of characters by by Oliver Stone. Uh, the only good thing was that there was the film uh, uh, caused a furor about files uh, not being available, and it caused um, the JFK Act Records Act to go through, which formed the Assassination Records Review Board. And they took four years and ended up declassifying uh, just about every document there is to have on the assassination. So something good did come out of the film. Somewhere along the way, and I'm not sure which of the committees it was, um, was it the con- Congressional uh, Review in the 70s that determined that there, there was, in fact, some kind of conspiracy? Yeah, that was the House Select Committee on Assassinations concluded that, that there was a conspiracy. They couldn't find the conspiracy, but they concluded that there was a uh, a second gunman shooting from the grassy knoll who fired one shot but missed. And do you believe that that was a political uh, de- de- determination? Did they do that for political reasons? Uh, no. This, basically, this, this was something they came up It was the acoustics evidence, okay. which came up at the last moment of the existence of the committee. 
and uh, they did not spend enough time, and uh, they believed the uh, conclusions of their experts that there was actually a shooter on the grassy knoll. Of course, later that was debunked by the National Academy of Sciences. So that idea was then um, addressed later on and determined to be uh, not accurate. That's right. The, the tape did not, did not actually capture the shots. Um, you could hear clearly the voice of a, of a sheriff uh, speaking after the assassination on the tape. There was um, the Zapruder film, which you have described as being the best video evidence of what happened that day. Was there other video taken that, that was used and that actually had some evidentiary value? Well, there's the Nick's film, which, which shows the, uh, the, the assassination from the other side of the street. Um, and you can see the same movement of Kennedy's head. Um, it's just not as close uh, and as clear as the Pruder film. Uh, there's a bunch of other films um, that show the motorcade turning onto Elm Street. That's the, uh, the Hughes film, and there's the Bronson film. There's quite a few films, but nothing like the Zapruder film. We, um, we've all, uh, you know, at one point or another, I'm sure, seen the Zapruder film, and we see one uh, point where JFK's arms come up to his neck. Yeah. Um, and that is often cited as an example of, I think, an, uh, either another shooter or another bullet. Uh, how does that factor into this discussion? I don't think it really, you know, the bullet, the bullet went through his, his neck, or the back, sort of the, the, the his back of the top part of his back through his neck, uh, and exited out the front, and it was sort of a, probably an, somewhat of an involuntary reaction to that, with his hands going up towards his neck, and that bullet, that was the bullet that actually also hit Governor Connolly sitting in front of him. All right. When we come back from this break, we're going to get into some of the other ideas and theories that are being circulated and, and flaws in those particular theories. But before we go to break here, uh, where can people find your book? Uh, my book is available on Amazon. It's available on uh, yeah, Amazon Electronic or uh, print copies. It's available on uh, on iTunes. It's available on Kobo. It's uh, it's uh, any electronic platform. And your website, conspiracyfreak.com, has a lot of great information, too, that you uh, offer in support of some of the ideas that you discuss in the book. In fact, I want to talk about some of the pictures that you've got on the website as well. Is there anything else yeah. people should look for on the website when they go? Um, well, there's, there's video. There's like a really good interview of me um, on television in, in Canada, and there's uh, uh, some radio interviews as well. Have you been to Dealey yep. Plaza? Have you actually been there and looked around? Oh, yeah. No, in fact, I was just there this week. Uh, I was there uh, on Sunday and Monday um, and Tuesday uh, walking around, and I was there for an event with uh, Ruth Payne, uh, where Marina Oswald lived uh, for uh, uh, before the assassination. Is the um, area in the same condition, same uh, layout as it was back in 1963? Does it look the same? It looks exactly the same. There's the, the big. There's a big sign that's been taken down on the side of the street, but it looks, um, it looks really the same. And and what's really striking is when you go there is how small it is. Really, it's a very very small piece of property, um, and you just realize that the, the the motorcade didn't go for that long. It's all you see it in there's a Pruder film in slow motion, but it's a very small street, um, and a very small space, and the shots from the Texas School Book Depository were very, very close. Are the, is there anything special about the Texas School Book Depository, other than we, we know what happened from there? But is there, other than that, is there anything remarkable about it? Well, the thing that's remarkable now is that there's a museum there. Uh, the Sixth Floor Museum uh, uh, is there, and uh, it's a terrific museum. Um, I strongly urge everybody to go visit it. The, the sniper's nest is walled off with glass, so you can look at the actual layout of the boxes and see the sniper's nest. But the museum is superb, and uh, they've, they've also got um, you know, a, a cafe, a bookstore, um, and a great library for researchers. Let's talk about Lee Harvey Oswald. Now, that's a name that, you know, that's kind of infamous. Uh, there are certain names that are historical figures that when you hear them, you automatically respond uh, in almost in a guttural way. Lee Harvey Oswald is one of those names. Let's talk about him as a person. Who was he? Well, he was a very, very troubled young man. His, his father uh, died before he was born. He was brought up by a single mother who... Uh, moved many, many times. He was continually changing schools, um, and he was troubled and uh, uh, somewhat of a loner in, in high school, uh, uh, a truant, didn't go to class a lot. He, well, they lived in New York for a while. He used to like to 
ride the subways during the day. Um, and but at an early age, uh, when he was twelve, he pulled a knife on his mother. Oh. Um, he pulled a knife on his uh, his stepbrother. Um, so he showed some violent tendencies pretty early on. Um, he had a troubled childhood, and he ended up going into the Marines when he was seventeen years old. So he serves in the U.S. military. Did he serve out his full term or full? Uh, well, he, he most of his term, right before he was about to be discharged, he he wanted to get an early. He asked for an early discharge. Uh, he made up an excuse that his mother um, had an injury and needed attention. Uh, the reality was that his plan was he wanted to defect to the Soviet Union. And so here's a, a kid who's you know basically. Uh, uh, you know, 1920, uh, defecting to the Soviet Union, which is, again, a uh, very, uh, very strange thing for somebody to do. He was very much uh, a communist. Is there anything remarkable about his military career? Did he serve with distinction? Was he a good soldier, if you will? He, he got into a couple of fights. He, 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 uh, he had some problems. Toward, in the beginning, he was a very good soldier and a very good shot. Um, he slowly uh, began to tire of it and uh, and uh, got into trouble continually in his last year and uh, uh, he got less than an honorable discharge um, in the end, which he tried to change continually wasn 't happy about that um, but uh, he was he started learning Russian while he was in the Marines, which again was also very very unusual but very consistent with his political views. Is there any evidence that he was in fact uh, affiliated or associated with the CIA or any other kind of kind of military intelligence while he was in the service? Um, there isn't. I mean, uh, again, I think uh, the conspiracy theorists would tell you there is, but you know, I don't think he's the sort of person that the CIA would want. I mean, yeah. here's a you know he 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 could barely write. Um, I think he was smart, but uh, if you look at his uh, his notebooks, even um, he even had to write down 20 plus 20 to add them together. He couldn't mm. do it in his head. Mm. Um, I don't think he's the sort of person the CIA would want working for him. Right. Let's jump to our listener line. By the way, if you want to comment on our discussion here, 844-687-7669 is the phone number. This is a good friend of the program, Barry from South Carolina. Hey, Barry, welcome to the show. Hello, JV. We haven't talked in a while, and I hope you're doing great, buddy. I'm doing well, and it has been too long, so I'm glad you called in tonight. What's on your mind? Yeah, no problem. Uh, I was just going to ask Fred. Uh, it's yep. obvious he doesn't think there was a conspiracy thing involved with JFK's murder, but I wonder what he thinks about John F. Kennedy's plane crash that killed he and his wife and sister-in-law. I wonder if there's any conspiracy there. JFK Jr., of course, you're talking about. Uh, Fred, have you looked into that or have any thoughts on that? I have not looked into that. I don't think there was a conspiracy there, uh, but I, it's not really a, a topic of interest for me. Barry, do you think there was? Oh, I guess Barry hung up. Um, obviously, that's been in the news uh, recently as well because there's been some addition. I think there was a, there was a television show that uh, it's always the, it's always TV or film that kind of stokes these things up. Um, when we come back to talking about Lee Harvey Oswald, he defects to the Soviet Union. How long does he spend there? Spends a couple of years in the Soviet Union, and it uh, doesn't take long before he realizes that um, it was a horrible mistake and that uh, life in the Soviet Union was very, very dull and drab, uh, with almost nothing to do um, uh, on weekends and nights. And, uh, but he does meet somebody, and he gets married um, while he's there and decides that he actually wants to bring his wife to America and um, actually has to go back to the American embassy in Moscow and he actually gets a loan from the State Department to go back to the U.S. Is there something unusual about the U.S. State Department accepting a defector back into the country? I don't, I don't know if that's ever happened before. I don't know how that happens, but is that unusual? It's not that un- it's happened before. I think I think if you when you look at the testimony of of the people in the embassy, they, they look they thought he was very young. Mm-hmm. They thought he was a kid making a mistake, um, so they sort of kept his passport. They thought he would be back. Um, and they were right, and so they, you know, they they sensed that um, maybe this isn't as final as Lee Harvey Oswald said it would be, and uh, he did come back and uh, went to the states. He, he ended up hating the Soviet Union for what it stood for, but he never. He also hated America. Just kind of a kind of a man without a home. He just couldn't be comfortable anywhere. It well, seems. he wanted a new home, and that was Cuba. Mm. Cuba was the new home that he wanted to to go to um, in 1963. At what point does 
Oswald, if at all, show any animosity toward uh, John F. Kennedy specifically? Did he at all? I don't think he had any uh, animosity towards Kennedy. I think he rather liked Kennedy. The issue here, I don't think he killed Kennedy because he was Kennedy. I think he killed Kennedy because he was president of the United States, and he wanted to strike a blow for the Cuban Revolution. I think Oswald was really, um, uh, what made an impression on Oswald was the speech that Castro made in September 1963, where he gave a warning that if attacks on him did not stop, U.S. leaders would not be safe. That speech was reported in the New Orleans press, um, and Oswald most certainly saw the reports of that speech, and I'm sure he was affected by it. There is a picture on your website um, of Oswald's notebook, and yep. I think in the caption or in the, in, in the little paragraph of text that you have next to the picture, you talk about, does this show a connection with Clay Shaw, if, I'm, if I remember correctly. What's significant about that page uh, or those pages in Oswald no, Oswald's notebook? Is there anything that's important about that? Well, well, when, when Clay Shaw was arrested, they confiscated his notebook of addresses, and uh, one of the researchers was going through it, and he saw a post office box, I think it was post office 19106, and uh, he said, that looks familiar, and in Oswald's notebook, there's notation where he has two Cyrillic Ds, and the same number, 19106, oh. and so Jim Garrison said, well, there's the link between Oswald and Clay Shaw. But, of course, Oswald wrote that while he was in the Soviet Union. It did not mean post office. And the post office box that uh, Clay Shaw had written down only came into existence in 1965. So there was no connection at all between the two. For those watching on our YouTube channel, there is, uh, that is being shown right now. When um, all of this starts to come together, what point does uh, Oswald intersect with uh, Dallas? When does he go to Dallas? Well, he, he at the end of at the end of September 1963, he was living in New Orleans. He decides he wants to go to Mexico City because uh, he wanted to go to Cuba. So he goes, spends a week in Mexico City, uh, shuttling back and forth between the Cuban and Soviet embassies to try to get a visa. And he was unsuccessful, and he decided he he moved back to Dallas um, right in the beginning of October 1963. I think he was a pretty bitter and disappointed man when he moved back. He had really wanted to get to Cuba. Now, there's some controversy about his time in, in Mexico City. What was it? Well, the controversy is that people sort of wonder was... Uh, uh, the problem was that the CIA published a picture of somebody they thought was Oswald coming out of the Soviet embassy, when in fact it was somebody else. Um, and so that caused a big stir, like, you know, what, what, why is the CIA publishing this picture? Why do they not have a picture of Oswald? What happened to the camera? And that spawned a lot of conspiracy talk about um, the trip in Mexico City. If you haven't visited the YouTube channel yet, please do that and subscribe. Just go to YouTube and search for J.V. Johnson. There's a great archive of programs there. About 400 back episodes of Beyond Reality Radio are there for you to view and listen to. No charge. Subscribing is no charge as well. Plus, we stream live. If you don't have a radio station in your area carrying the program, it's a great way to watch it. I know we have a lot of international watchers on the YouTube channel, which is really cool. Plus, there's a, uh, a chat room there that is active during the live program. Our guest tonight, Fred Litwin, is the author of a book, I Was a Teenage JFK Conspiracy Freak, which is very appropriate given given, uh, the fact that today is the 56th anniversary of JFK's assassination. Fred, let's go back to the listener phone line. This is Fred in North Carolina. Hey, Fred, welcome to the program. Yeah, I've really enjoyed your programs Thank you. Thank you very much. What's on your mind? I I was going to call on the Salem Witch thing and ask the guy about Cotton Mather, but... uh, dozed off right after that last <laughs> that happens at this hour <laughs> anyway uh fred's done a beautiful job i think objectively looking into this and i'm very impressed uh and you of course do such a wonderful job of questioning uh and pulling out the right things from these people that it makes the show so much better and I, I, too, devoured Rush to Judgment at the time by Mark Lane, and I think it was just a phenomenal job he did, uh, tracking down Officer Tippett, who found him at the movie theater and so forth. And I want to ask a couple of questions, though, uh, Fred. Um, yep. Now, Officer, uh, I mean, Jack Ruby, of course, uh, shot Oswald, and then Ruby, um, in, I mean, the guy, uh, Ruby, ended up in the hospital, and there was some 
some thinking that they had injected cancer in him or something. He never got out before he died, so two people got hushed up pretty completely. Uh, also, what I want to ask you is that there's a there's supposedly, and I've seen a picture of it, and I want to know if you've seen it, a bullet on the stretcher that they bought Kennedy in on, but whoever supposedly planted it, that the bullet showed no damage whatsoever, which couldn't have happened. Supposedly. Now, I don't know. I'm not a ballistics expert. I was going to ask you if you saw anything on that. Well, we, yeah, I sure did. That, that bullet actually did have quite a bit of a damage on the side. What you have to understand is the bullet uh, went through Kennedy's neck. It started tumbling. And so it entered Connolly. It entered Connolly uh, sideways, eventually ended up going backwards through his wrist. And so the bullet had damage. It was flattened. And, it, and because it was flattened, lead was extruded from the core, and that's why the fragments that were found in Connolly's wrist were all lead. Um, so it's not true. That it was not a pristine bullet. I should okay, also well, that's, say that's that, that, um, that, that Ruby died of cancer in January 1967. Um, he had just won his appeal for a new trial. Um, but he, he was a sick man and uh, never lived to get that new trial. There's really nothing suspicious about that. Okay. Also, are you familiar with um, why John Jr. named the magazine that he published what he named it? George. We're talking George? about the magazine George, yeah. Yeah, I, I have no idea why he called it George, to be honest. Okay. Well, you know who was head of the CIA back back at the time? Well, we're talking about George Bush, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't I don't see a connection. That's that's a bit uh, of a very, you know, there's well, not much of a connection there. Well, I'm thinking that he was on the grassy knoll. There was also on Mark Lane's book a man that was in a switch tower at the railroad thing at 5 in the morning saw that car come along there to that bridge. Well, that was Lee Lee Bowers was in the railroad tower behind uh behind the grassy knoll, but if you read Lee Bowers' testimony, I mean, he really wasn't quite sure what he saw. He saw a few men that he thought were suspicious um, in the parking lot uh, next to the Texas School Book Depository, right behind the picket fence, but they weren't associated with each other. They were two separate men that had nothing to do with each other. Um, there's really nothing in his testimony that uh, really stands out, to be honest. Soundwave technical... Uh technical advancements proved there was a second bullish bullet or are you saying there was not that's there was <laughs> not the the acoustics evidence seemingly proved a shot from the grassy knoll but that was re-examined by the national academy of sciences um, and they determined uh, uh, quite because of a rock drummer they determined uh, with his help that in fact the tape did not capture the shots at all Okay, well, that's good to know. See, I did not know. I hadn't heard that. Fred, thank you so much for those great questions and your phone call, and thanks for listening. We have to go to break again. It's Beyond Reality Radio. We'll be right back. Hey, gang, JV here. I need your help. I need you to support the program in any form possible. You can go to YouTube, and you can subscribe to the YouTube channel. Search on YouTube for JV Johnson. Hit the subscribe button and the notification button. Also, we have a Patreon page, which allows you to directly support the program. Go to patreon.com slash Joha, that's J-O-H-A-W, and support at the level you feel comfortable. Every little bit helps. Also, subscribing to the podcast version of the show is a big help as well. You can find the podcast version on any major podcast platform. Your help is very greatly appreciated and will allow us to continue to bring you great programming. Thanks for being here. Fred, is the book? Is it just out, or how long has it been out? Oh, it's been out um, about a year now. Okay. Um, and it's, you said it's in uh, electronic form at all electronic platforms, basically. And is there a way to get a hard copy, did you say? Yeah, through Amazon. You can get a hard copy. All right. Let's jump back to our listener lines from New Orleans, Louisiana, home of Jim Garrison. This is Chris. Chris, welcome to the program. Hey. Hi, guys. How you doing? Terrific. Thanks for Good. calling. What's on your mind? Oh, thank you. Uh, great show, and I've been a conspiracy theory nut, uh, you know, for 50 years. Um, I have a comment and then a couple of questions uh, for Fred. Uh, the caller that, that called about JFK Jr.'s uh, conspiracy, uh, you know, JFK Jr., um, he wasn't instrument-rated on his plane, and uh, he hit weather, and he didn't know what the hell to do, and um, he couldn't see the horizon line. Right, and he couldn't, and and that's all there is to that. He was just stupid to fly in that weather. So as simple as that. Um, questions about uh, uh, the situation here, and I, 
visited Dealey Plaza just a couple of months ago, and as Fred said, it's really a terrific place to see. Uh, the museum is really wonderful on the sixth floor, and I went up to the museum, and I was uh, looking at all the exhibits, and you, you actually get to uh, stand where Oswald allegedly stood when he was taking aim, which is, uh, you know, very chilling and, and very somber and just a, just a strange emotional experience. What I what I what hit me when I saw that it's something that I've never heard anybody discuss, and that is the um, the progression of the motorcade. It's kind of hard to describe over the phone, but the progression of the motorcade came up uh, one street in Dallas and then turned left, yeah, and uh, went down toward the grassy knoll, and at that point is when the shots happened. However, when you're looking out the window where Oswald looked, the motorcade was uh, just a, a way easier shot, way closer to him, if he had taken the shot when the motorcade was approaching him before it that's, an, that's a very easy question to answer. Um, the reason he didn't was if he took the shot with the motorcade approaching him, um, all the people in the motorcade would be able to go right into the building and get him. He took his shot when everybody was driving away from him. That's how he got away. And, of course, you're talking about police escort and all of yeah, them. Yeah, all the police were <laughs> going away from Oswald when he took the shot. It was, a, it was the perfect time to take the shots, not when the motorcade was approaching. Then they would have easily run into the building. Yeah. I'm not convinced. I think that the police were uh, an equal distance away from him in either case, before the shot and after the shot. They could have turned right around if they knew where their shot was coming well, from. Well, not, not all the Secret Service were... and everybody else in the motorcade. They were committed to going and continuing. And, in fact, they did, and everybody else in the motorcade followed along. No, not that many people realized what had happened. And can it also be that their eyes would have been directed right at Oswald if he had shot as they were approaching versus their backs it, to him? It, 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 it makes perfect sense. Yeah. What do, you th- what do you think of that, Chris? I don't see how their eyes could have been uh, on Oswald, and I think that it would have taken the police uh, and everybody the same amount of time to try to realize what happened, uh, I know, you know, your argument makes a bit of sense, but I'm still not sure about it. Well, you make but it, anyway, well, the, um, the proof is in the pudding in the fact that Oswald did get away. That's the proof of my argument. Yeah. He had enough time to get out of that building before they could even seal it. Huh. Yeah. Chris, well, that, interesting. That's interesting. a good that's a good point though, Chris, and we appreciate you bringing it up. Did you have another one you wanted to make? Yeah, just one other question. What happened to Kennedy's brain? Uh, that's 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 one that's on my list as well. Yeah, what did happen to Kennedy's braid, Fred? It's it's reported, you know, commonly pop culture that it disappeared. Well, let's let's let uh, Fred answer first. Well, I think I think you know we're not exactly sure what happened to it. I think it was in possession of the Kennedy family um, uh, in 1968. I think it was the Kennedy body was moved. Um, and some people believe that Robert Kennedy buried the brain with, uh, with, with JFK at that time. We'll never know the exact truth, but it was in possession of the family. Did you have another, um, some other information, Chris, that you wanted to share about that? Well, it's just that I've read that uh, when Kennedy's plane took off from Dulles, uh, sorry, from Dallas, rather, by the time it reached Bethesda, the plane was gone. And I didn't know it had ever been accounted for or recovered, but that's certainly would have given uh, conclusive proof about the direction of the shot. No, well, they took the brain out, right? The forensic pathologist, the brain was in, the, they took the brain out. Um, uh, so the, the forensic pathologist examined the brain. The, that, that's no mystery. Well, it, it, if, they, if they would have given a, 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 an adequate examination of the brain, they would have said conclusively where the shots came from, and they had Well, they didn't, they, 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 they were very, uh, believe me, it's, it's very conclusive. The autopsy x-rays and photos right now show uh, the beveling of the bone exactly. They show exactly uh, where the entrance and exit wounds are. 
So are it's, we, it's, when we talk about the brain not being examined completely and controversy over, over the wounds, are we, just, are we just kind of repeating misinformation that we've been uh, told? Is that what your conclusion is, Fred? No, I think, I, th- I think that we have enough medical information in, what we ha- in the autopsy, x-rays, and photos. Uh, every single forensic pathologist has come to the same conclusion after viewing them. There's enough information in that without the brain to uh, say that Kennedy was hit by two shots from behind. Chris, thank you so much for the points and the phone call. We appreciate you listening and chiming in on this discussion. It's still something that's going to remain controversial for a long time. Um, Let's go back to Oswald a little bit, Fred. Can you yep. can you give us a, kind of a summary of his his actions leading up to the assassination and then immediately after? Because that's also a big part of the story. Well, Oswald, you know, was, was living in a rooming house. He was separated from his wife. Um, he was a violent man. He actually had been beating his wife. He was separated from his wife. He was living in a rooming house under a, under a pseudonym, under a different name, O.H. Lee. Uh, his wife was living with, with uh, Ruth Payne. Uh, and their kids. So Oswald would only see her on weekends. Um, what's really telling is the morning of the assassination, Oswald left early. He left $170 on the dresser in their bedroom and left his wedding ring that morning. Quite an indication that something dramatic was going to happen. Right. And he goes to work. He goes to the, the school, uh, the depository. With his gun in a package. Does anybody see that? Well, uh, the Wesley Buell Fraser, who, dro- and, uh, who drove him to work, saw Oswald with a package, and so did Wesley's sister, who also saw Oswald with a package, saw him put it on the, the back seat of the car. When people um, are confronted with evidence like that, you know, then, then the story goes from, well, yeah, he did have a gun, and yeah, he, he probably fired it, but he couldn't have uh, made the shots, he couldn't have hit the president, that was, he was just set up as, as he said, a patsy. And the, the only problem with that is that Oswald was actually a very good shot. He was a sharpshooter in the uh, U.S. Marines. Um, he was a very good shot, actually. Um, it's just disinformation to say he was a poor shot. He shoots the president, if, if you believe this particular uh, version, as your book outlines. He shoots yep. Kennedy. And then how does he escape? I mean, how, how is he able well, to get he, away? It's very, he basically uh, runs across the floor. He hides the rifle between two boxes. He goes down four flights of stairs, um, and then he actually is accosted by a police uh, policeman. Marion Baker realized the shots came from the Texas School Book Depository. He ran up the side, parked his motorcycle, ran in, and actually saw Oswald. Um, but Roy Truly, the manager, sort of vouched for Oswald, saying, oh, he works here. And um, Baker went up the stairs, and Oswald walked out the front door, uh, and ended up taking a, a bus and then a taxi back to his rooming house. And then, of course, it's um, also known that uh, he eventually ends up in a movie theater. And well, the interesting thing is he went back to his rooming house to get his pistol, get his gun. Mm-hmm. And then he ends up shooting a policeman and then runs into a movie theater. Why did the, uh, this tip it, right? Why did, why, did he, yep. why did he stop Oswald? Well, I think, you know, we'll never know for sure. I think that basically Oswald was walking um, in one direction, probably saw um, Tippett, and maybe he changed direction, and that caught Tippett's eye and thought perhaps he should stop and talk to this person. So, of course, Oswald was also wearing a jacket. It was warm that day. So, you know, there might have been a couple of reasons why Tippett decided to stop him. So at that at that point he just may have looked suspicious, uh, and obviously everybody's senses were heightened at that point. Yeah, he, he, Oswald may have done something to to cause Tippett to be suspicious, and he he pulled over, asked Oswald to uh, Oswald was talking to him. Uh, he asked him to step aside and uh, just shot him. Yeah, which is not the actions of an innocent man, I would say. Uh, no, and then ran, and of course there were so many eyewitnesses who saw you know who saw him run away. Yeah, they saw him uh, uh, ejecting the cartridges into the bushes. Um, a lot of eyewitnesses. Let's go back to our listener line, get another call in here. This is Joe from Buffalo, New York. Hey, Joe, welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks a lot. Yeah, I got a, a question. I missed the first hour of the program, so maybe this was covered, but I don't know how many years ago this was, 20 years ago or so, there was a video, maybe a book out, too. I have the video called Best Evidence. Yep. I think the guy was David something. 
They've been and he interviewed uh, Navy corpsmen um, on tape who were involved in, and also funeral parlor people in Dallas, and there were some serious discrepancies. I remember that. Like, one guy said uh, that, I think at the funeral parlor, they had a sheet over the president's body, but the guys at Bethesda said he was in a body bag, and then there was a bronze casket offloaded the plane. But the guys put him in said it was a military casket they put him in. And another guy I remember uh, saying that he was at Bethesda walking across a upper-level floor looking down. He heard some commotion, and he, in came the casket with Jackie Kennedy behind it, and yet he had just finished taking uh, x-rays to be developed from the autopsy they just did upstairs. So can you... Can you explain some of those discrepancies, or is there an explanation for that? Great points, uh, yeah, Joe. I mean, yeah, it, it's the, the problem with the discrepancies is that uh, memory is a very, very funny thing. And all of those witnesses that David Lifton, um, who has come, come across, and Harry Livingston, another researcher, between themselves they're not consistent. So between themselves they differ in whether there was a body bag, no body bag. So there's no consistency between within their, their accounts of what happened. Um, and we're fortunate that we have the autopsy x-rays and photos that have been authenticated, so we actually know what the body looked like. We know where the wounds are. Um, so there, there's really no mystery. I think David Lifton has uh, unfortunately painted himself into a corner with a theory that's just uh, preposterous. Was that help, okay, Joe? Well, I'm sorry. Does that help, Joe? Well, a little bit, but I, I remember those guys seemed pretty convincing, those, those Navy corpsmen who were, who were involved in the... Uh... Well, absolutely. Why wouldn't they be convincing? I mean, memory, again, people, you know, lots of people have poor memory, you know, remember things differently, and uh, they're still convincing. The point is, all of those witnesses, there were many of them, all of them do not agree within themselves. So here we are. They're not lying. They just no. are remembering. They have, their, their memories are just uh, inaccurate, maybe. Is that what we're talking yeah, about? Well, so they're convinced exactly. their memories are accurate, but they may be wrong. I mean, the David Lifton theory is that basically there was the there was a uh, a surgery performed on Kennedy's head to make it look like there was a lone gunman, right? Um, which is uh, impossible, actually. Joe, thank you for the phone call. Great questions as well. We appreciate it. We're just running out of time here. Um, at this point, I think the figure is something like sixty percent of people believe still that there was a conspiracy and there was more than just a single gunman. And that number yep. has been as high as 80, I think, maybe even higher. Um, oh, yes. Why does this remain such a controversial and such a um, popular notion that there was a conspiracy here? Well, I th the interesting thing is if you look at the numbers since the Internet, the numbers of believing in conspiracy has fallen quite dramatically since the year 2000. Uh, the number of people believing in no conspiracy has risen what the Internet has done is allowed people like me a platform to actually argue with people who believe in conspiracy. And we now can win arguments online. We can post evidence. Um, there's many good debunking websites um, online. There's many good debunking books. And I think we're winning the battle here, and more and more people are moving away from conspiracy to believing there was no conspiracy. One more question here. Uh, we, yep. need a, we need a quick answer to this one. Uh, does any of this discussion tonight have anything to do with what happened to Martin Luther King Jr. or Robert Kennedy? Are there any connections? Uh, I don't think so. I, I think that we know what happened in those cases. Uh, there were lone gunmen in those assassinations as well. And so, uh, Fred, you said your next work is what? On Jim yeah, Garrison? On, uh, Jim Garrison. I'm writing a book on the whole Jim Garrison case. Um, and all the people that he went after. Fred, this has been a great discussion, of course, on the 56th anniversary of the assassination of JFK. Once again, let people know how they can get hold of this book. Uh, you could buy it on Amazon. You could buy it on iTunes. Um, you could buy it on Kobo. It's available in, in ebook format or in hard copy as well. Thanks for being here, and I hope you'll consider coming back when your next book is published. Oh, yeah, I'd love to. Thank you very much. Terrific. It was, it was a blast. Thank you. Fred Litwin, again, his website is conspiracyfreak.com. What a great conversation. We had so many uh, great points from callers as well. We couldn't get to everybody tonight, sadly, but it is the type of conversation that if we had four hours, I'm certain we could have filled sure. the entire time with that. And don't forget, Monday night, we've got uh, James Douglas joining us. He's an author and a theologian. 
He says that JFK was killed for trying to make peace during the Cold War. And that's not an uncommon theory. Right. That's something that, even though the, the angles change a little bit, whether it was Cuba, whether it was the Russians, whether it was the CIA, whatever it happens to be, uh, the, the military industrial complex, uh, the mob. Right. I mean, there are so many different theories. But this this conspiracy, the JFK conspiracy, has not just thrived for 56 years. But it's actually seems to have grown, as uh, Fred pointed out. Maybe those numbers are coming down a little bit, but uh, it's still something that people talk about all the time. Right. And uh, James Douglas draws a parallel between Kennedy's death and Gandhi's, which will be interesting. Then that's Monday night's program. In the second hour of Monday night's show, we have Brian Keating. Don't forget tomorrow night is a best of Brian on Monday night in the second hour. We'll talk about his book, losing the Nobel prize. He'll talk about this year's winners. And he'll also talk about the most recent results in cosmology in the search for extraterrestrial life. That's all right here on beyond reality radio. Hope you have a great weekend. Thanks for being here. Don't forget to subscribe to the YouTube channel and we will see you next time. It's beyond reality radio. Beyond Reality Radio is hosted by Jason Hawes and J.V. Johnson and produced by Alexandria Johnson and Slick Eddie Edwards for Intercom Radio. Beyond Reality Radio is distributed by Westwood One Radio Networks. Stop by our Facebook page and say hello. Follow the hosts on Facebook as well. For Jason Hawes, follow at JasonHawes.Taps. For J.V. Johnson, follow at JVJParanormal. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Radio or you have a suggestion for a guest, contact Slick Eddie Edwards at SlickEddieEdwards at gmail.com. Be sure to visit our chat room as well at beyondrealityradio.com. Thanks for listening.